let's pretend that this isn't advice. And I'm Erin, and I'm not giving you advice. It's it's not advice. I can't help myself <laughs> give advice. I don't mean to. I don't want to. I want you to be able to live your life, but I know how to do it. I'm a huge know-it-all, and this is where I practice not giving advice to people, except I totally give advice to them. I'm a lawyer turned professional certified coach, and I just happen to give the best advice. But this is a podcast, not a coaching session, so I obviously don't do that here, except I do. This is not advice with Erin Conlon, your know-it-all lawyer coach friend. This is not advice. On today's episode of This Is Not Advice, I have... Sylvia Panic, a financial advisor with Natural Investments. Natural Investments is a, a sustainable investment advising company. And you'll hear all about it, like what it means to be or choose investments that align with your values. But really what I love about this conversation with Sylvia is one, we have a ton of fun. Two, we talk about how the personal affects the professional and vice versa. And also what I love about Sylvia as a human being is how she models choosing, making small choices and big choices that model integrity. Um, I think Sylvia is a person of great integrity and um, really is just a solid human being. So I hope you get a lot out of today's conversation. You'll hear me get on a soapbox at one point. Um, and you know, if you are interested in working with either Sylvia or me, if you want to start investing your money in a way that aligns with your values, reach out to Sylvia. And if you want to start working on yourself in a way that allows you to, you know, take off, um, and expand your experience and feel more, whatever it is that you're missing, then reach out to me. Um, I'd love to hear from you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Sylvia, hi. Hi, Erin. Um, I'm so excited to have you on today. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a while since we get to, got to catch up. I know. Well, I know who you are, uh, but for our audience, who are you? Ah, uh, yes. I am a uh, justice warrior. Uh, <laughs> that. That's so great. I wasn't expecting that as an answer. <laughs> I am a justice warrior in the financial advisory services field. So. Okay. So I'm going to drop an F-bomb. What the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> basically, basically, you know, I finally like accepted who I am and I'm, you know, ready to talk about it now. Uh, it's something that I've been doing most of my career and just really been able to um, express fully um, at the company that I am right now. But uh, what I do at Natural Investments is a, um, I'm a sustainable and socially responsible investor, advisor. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's fantastic. So I am able to take, you know, people who have issues with what they're seeing in the world, you know, problems in society and in equity and environmental issues. And, you know, when they say, I don't want my money going towards this, they get to do that 
through us, with us. Um, you know, we're a firm that only focuses on sustainable and socially responsible type lens investing for our clients. So, so when you say like sustainable and socially responsible, who gets to say what that is? Uh, you know, there is no definitive definition, right? Uh Um, it's relative truth, um, relative interpretation, but, uh, you know, I think a lot of it just has to do with looking at things through a more collaborative um, and compassionate lens as opposed to competitive, which is like what I think people think of the business world as traditionally, mm. right? Where it's survival of the fittest, dog eat dog world, and we just don't look at things that way. Yeah. Well, I have so many questions. And outside of like the work that you do, who are you? Uh, I am then just a justice warrior. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine you with like a, a sign, like a picket sign and a, like a hat. This is how you go grocery shopping. Yeah, I'm just ever since I was a kid, really, I'm just very like cause oriented, purpose driven, like mission oriented, you know. And Mm -hmm. I look at it and I realize a lot of my friends and family are just kind of like, sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Here comes Sylvia with her feelings and ideas. You know, yeah, I mean, even in high school, I was, we, there was no recycling program yet in the 90s. And with a couple of girlfriends, we were like, we need to introduce recycling, you know. And so starting that program at the high school and, you know, it's just always, yeah, it's always been something that's been a part of me. And, you know, I was like letting that go in the beginning, you know, when I went to college and when I, uh, you know, was looking at my first job and like, what am I going to do? And then eventually I just gravitated towards it. Right. And then started finding people who think the same, the same way that I do. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's just really kind of embedded in the type of person that I am. And so, um, you know, where I can, where I'm not working, I volunteer and, and, um, and that sort of thing. It's sort of, yeah, that's, that's who I am. What were you like as an eight year old? <laughs> I think my brothers would say I was a bully, but <laughs> it was for your own good. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Bullying you for your own good. I, like, mm-hmm. I just, that's such mm-hmm. a woman thing to say. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting as to like how I got to be here also and in like the way that I am right now and my way being, you know, there's been transformations for sure. I've been, I've been, you know, I've listened to some of the other podcasts and some of your other guests, you know, uh-huh. and then, um, there's some threads that I really see that are common. Um, uh, especially when you talked about, it was so funny, sobriety, mm-hmm. you know, and that like so many like consecutive previous guests of yours have talked about how they struggled with it. Yeah. Um, and I, I can relate to that. I've never like, I didn't go through AA or anything like that, but definitely it was something that um, growing out of, I came from like a very strict family, very conservative, very Catholic immigrant family, you know, that had its own trauma from World War II in Poland. My family's Polish. Um, 
and, you know, my parents, my extended family that came over here to the States, you know, just from also uh, post-World War II Soviet communism um, and all of that, like the stories that they tell, just really rough. Um, and so, you know, I can step back now and see why that's the way that they were, but it was very stifling for me. And I didn't realize at the time, but when, um, when I graduated college, I was like, I need to, I need to leave. You know, I just, I wanted to go and explore other things, not stick back at home, even though family was very important to me. And I think it gave me the room to sort of find things that were important to me that I just couldn't find when I was always around this large family. Um, that I have here in Chicago, but eventually, um, so I got to grow and spread my wings when I lived out in DC, um, worked for uh, a couple of like green business associations. And then when I came back a few years ago, a lot of that stuff that I had been trying to run away from came, comes up because I never dealt with it and I never never goes away. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I started falling into bad habits and, and I did struggle with alcohol at one point. Um, but then, you know, started doing therapy because in sort of traditional conservative families, therapy is still seen as like, but you're not crazy. Why are you going to therapy? <laughs> but you're not, but you're not crazy. We're fine. Everything's fine. Everyone's okay. Everyone's okay. Like, what did we do to make you bad? What happened? How did I mess up? Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I feel, I don't know if I can say this. You said everything, everything goes. Yeah. Um, everything's, but everything's I, okay here you know, I was like, do I need to go to AA? Right. I, I remember thinking like, I have a hard time. I couldn't even like keep alcohol in the house because I would drink it, you know, as much as there was, I would drink it. But it just, the idea of AA sometimes just sort of bothered me. It was like, if I have to choose this path where I'm never allowed to touch alcohol again, does that mean I'm really dealing with the situation, you know, or is it just avoiding more? And so to me, it always felt like that's not, that doesn't mean, you know, success in life or that I'm, I'm managing things well. So yeah. it was almost like I need to be able to see that I can still have a social drink, you know, at a birthday party or holiday or wedding or something and still be fine. That to me is then like you have really overcome your demons or, you know, the generational trauma that you inherited from your family and all that stuff. How, how is so. that going for you? Like, is it working? It has. Uh, uh, yeah. I, you know, it sort of sounds strange to say, you know, we were like almost two years into this pandemic and I'd been doing work before that, um, mm-hmm. like I said, with therapy. And um, there was, there's this landmark program I talked to you about at one point that I did. I know about landmark. It me down the journey, right? Yeah. Um, uh, coaching with you. Oh my gosh, what a blessing, right? Uh, and say it's more. Just- <laughs> <laughs> Tell everybody how amazing it is. <laughs> it is. It was great. It's this hyper-focused, you know, way of like working on yourself. That's like, yeah, you know, future-driven. You know, all of that for sure. So it it was invaluable, and it's just you know, and it's something that doesn't happen overnight. And so I'd say I started working on this in 2017, mm-hmm. and then with the pandemic where I'm located in the city, I'm next to hospital Mm -hmm. and I'm, and it's a teaching hospital and I'm across the street. So in my building, I'm in a high rise, half the people there work at the hospital. And before we, you know, understood what this virus was like, 
or had any real PPE, you know, or, or vaccines or anything last year. Um, it was sort of terrifying to leave my house. And yeah, so I then started escaping into camping. I had a car. I would go on the weekends and get out into the nature because then I didn't have to worry about, you know, <laughs> what's going to happen, you know. And This is a place I can literally breathe air. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, without a mask on and, and worrying and freaking out. So I also, just before the pandemic hit, like a month before, had been in a restaurant where they had a bookshelf of books. And I saw this one on uh, Buddhism. And I was like, I am curious. I've, you know, I've heard good things about it. And, you know, so I took it with the intention of bringing it back. But then, you know, lockdown happened a few weeks later. And then this was sitting on my on my nightstand and I started taking it camping with me and just unplugging. And that really, what book? um, it was by, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm -hmm. And is it the heart of Buddhism? Like I can see the cover. I don't don't remember. He's written so many books. I know that, um, that I'll have to like send that back to you later. Uh, well, I'm just going to put it in the show notes so that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll tell you later, but it was something like the heart of Buddhism or something like that. And just, it was lovely and it allowed me to really kind of decompress and really take it in. Right. Cause I'm not going out and doing the things and being social and distracted by concerts and movies and birthday parties and um, really helped me resolve more things. I feel, I feel much more centered now than ever before. And it's almost as if, it's because of the pandemic, which is odd to say. Well, you know, there. I do think that there were a lot of gifts that came from the pandemic. And also, it is a lot of trauma. And I think that a lot of times we get into this, oh, this bad thing happened. And we make the things that happen one or the other. And we don't allow for the complex experience of what it is. Mm-hmm. And we're in what 22 months of this, 20 months of it. Mm-hmm. There's no way it can be all bad or, or all good. It's yeah. just too long of an experience. Yeah. We forget that the struggle tends to be what teaches us and makes us stronger when we come out on the other end of it. Yeah. Totally. Well, I kind of want to get back a little bit to um the, some of the work that you do, because I feel like not many people do what you do. It's that's true for now, but it's definitely a growing field. We're seeing um, uh, an explosion. I like literally like exponential explosion in the space. I've been in it for about 20 years now, close to 20 years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I feel like I've been aware of it for a long time, right? Yeah. Um, but I didn't actually become an advisor and start my practice until about five years ago. And all of a sudden, I feel like, you know, because I'm reading these trade magazines and Bloomberg News and all of that, uh, we're looking. Um, I, at my firm, I also look at mutual funds that claim to be socially responsible or green in some way. Uh, the acronym, the popular acronym that you'll see is ESG which stands for environmental, social, and governance issues um, that, you know, these investors and these mutual fund companies are looking from, you know, at environmental 
and social information as they're doing their decision-making for like what company to invest in. Um, essentially, uh, it's this popular thing that has just taken off because they see now people have been demanding it for years and people are moving towards these. And so now all of a sudden, all the big players are adopting it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my industry, we're sort of like, uh, you know, this is, so. <laughs> a, part, a part of it is like great, but also the other part is like, well, we know what happens is there tends to be um, greenwashing. You know, what's greenwashing? Explain greenwashing to people. I, the way that I see it is you will use words and you'll say things that sound great. But if people really understood what that meant, like how it means, what it's meant in practice, they'd be like, that's not what I thought you were doing. Right. So, I mean, I like to equate this when I talk to clients and prospects, uh, you know, using those kinds of words in like the food industry or cosmetics industry and be like, uh, you know, natural lipstick. But then you find out that they're using lead because heavy metals, you know, make colors brighter, you know, and it's like lead is technically natural. They get to get away with it, but you wouldn't know how you look at the label. So, you know, there's this distrust that happens. And I think that it's also happening in our industry, which is why I'm happy that this year in March with the new administration, um, at the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, uh, they started a task force to look at when companies say they're doing ESG type investing, green investing, what are they actually doing? What does this mean to sort of like try to curtail mislabeling um, of, of what we're saying? So, but it's, you know, it's going to be a long road because this is such a relative truth thing, right? I know. Well, and that's kind of the crazy thing about all of this is that it's all relative. Mm -hmm. And even with something like values investing, right? Like my values don't always match up with your values. And we have pretty similar values, but they don't always match up. Right. Right. And so if my values don't match up with yours, like what happens if you've invested in something that I'm like, Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the way that we have to tackle it, at least at our firm, is um, we just try to, in general, you know, uh, we have a whole we have a whole questionnaire that we give to fund companies to fill out about, you know, like sixty different issues across ESG, um, from you know fossil fuels to you know pollution to um, labor issues to governance in the sense of like, you know, do you have people or women of color, I'm sorry, women or people of color, you know, minorities on your board of directors, right? Um, A popular G governance issue. Uh, We take a look at what they say they're doing. Um, It's really popular right now for the new players to come in and say, we're doing only positive looking at things where uh, we'll integrate these ESG issues and pick the, the best of the worst, but they never expressly say we're not going to invest in certain things. Like we won't invest in private prisons or we won't invest in um, weapons, you know, firearms, or we won't invest in fossil fuels. And our clients kind of want that. They want to, they want to have that written, you know, stated guarantee that you're not, they're not going to turn around and six months later look in the portfolio and see that actually you're investing in some of that stuff. So um, that's kind of the stuff that we try to weed out. You know, it's great that you're doing these like positive, the best of the best. I'm sorry, the best of the worst. <laughs> right. 
so that's one aspect. The other aspect, though, is um, shareholder advocacy. We look at uh, every publicly traded company has an annual meeting. Yep. Uh, and it's, uh, it goes on record. All the, all the whole meeting goes and gets filed at the SEC. Um, things that get introduced on the ballot to be voted on by investors. Um, there are resolutions that you can put down. Um, ESG type shareholder resolutions to say, I want to talk about this. I want more information about this from you. It could be things like, I want, you know, I see a calculation of your carbon emissions, you know, as a company. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> Aaron made a confused face. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was an, ooh, that would be <laughs> like, have fun with that one, Bob. <laughs> yeah. There's, um, let's say, a gender pay disparity report. How are women paid at your company versus men in the same levels? Uh, you can also, you know, ask for things like that more information, essentially more disclosure, more transparency. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing about resolutions though, is they're like New Year's resolutions, right? You know, if I resolve to go to the gym, doesn't mean that, you know, and if I don't go, nothing happens to me. So whereas, <laughs> <laughs> but still, you know, it's, you know, if they even bother to put forward these types of resolutions, um, if company dialogue is not going anywhere, right? Because these mutual fund portfolio managers, you know, they have shares and, you know, in these companies. And so they sort of have a seat at the table, so to speak. Yeah. You know, and, and they do, you know, they talk to us and they say that we engage, we, we talk to them about, you know, are, are you protecting the um, queer LGBTQ plus community, you know, in your employee, you know, with your employee handbook policies and procedures, you know, and, and things like that. But the thing is, is that eventually, you know, our expectation is, you know, there's going to be situations and issues where the company is just sort of blowing you off, you know, or saying the nice things, but not actually making progress. And, and so at that what? point, yeah, are you willing to, after some months or years of engagement, willing to put forward a resolution and bring it to public conversation with your other investors at mm -hmm. the table in the room? And a lot of them say, no, well, we don't want to, we're not activist investors. You know, like we're not activist investors. And I just look at them and I say, well, mm, you know, but that sort of is what brought you and is what people want, right? They want to see what you're doing. They want transparency. They want disclosure. They want more information and they want to see that it's more than just words. So, you know, for you to be like, well, we don't want to rock the boat by filing anything publicly um, or voting. Oh, my goodness. So their votes actually become public record as well. They have to disclose that. And we look on the back end, you know, they'll have these stated principles about, you know, being like a, a gender equity uh, fund, right? Women in leadership, let's say thematic fund. And if we see gender pay disparity resolutions coming up at these various companies that they're investing in and they're voting against it, like we see that we see situations like that where, you know, like 90% of the time they vote against it and we ask them about it and be like, well, uh, you know, our overall corporate, you know, they'll have like 10 other funds that are like conventional funds. And this is their one special ESG fund. But the proxy voting gets sort of applied the same across the entire company. And so there's this blanket almost like working against <laughs> what they're working for. Um, and you know, we have to tell them that that's not acceptable. And that's a lot of uphill battle. 
Mm -hmm. We do a lot of research. We really, really look into this and and try to find those who we can see are intentionally um, working for change as opposed to just, it's very popular right now to say like risk adjusted, you know, sort of, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're investing in the best of the worst, but that's about it. And we're like, no, it's, you need to actually be in it to see them improving and changing and being more, like I said earlier, compassionate, collaborative, courageous, and in, you know, not creating environmental destruction or extraction or exploitation of workers or communities. So, Yeah. One of the things that, um, I have two thoughts. My first thought is like, and I know you don't make promises as to how your funds perform. So I want to be really clear that I get that, but have you noticed like any difference in performance between how like investing, uh, responsibly does compared to the traditional, doggy dog model of investing is it there's a lot of information now and a lot more reports now that we've been you know this has been going on for 30 40 50 60 years in some cases mm-hmm. for some funds uh and there it shows that performance is comparable which doesn't sound great you would think that that means that you know it should always be better um but what we do also see is less volatility so with well, this think- investing I think comparable performance, what that tells me is that there's actually, there's actually a choice. Most people think like, oh, what, whatever, it doesn't matter. Why bother investing mm-hmm. with my values or choosing uh, investments that align with how I see the world? And what I'm hearing you say is, well, you're not actually likely to choose any more or less risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there is some truth to that. Yeah, absolutely. Like you're going to have risk in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, why not take on the risk that actually aligns with the risk that you care about? Right. That as well as, you know, um, like we said, we try to work with people who are actively and demonstrably, you know, you can see that they're trying to push for better Um you know, less pollution, less extraction, um, mm-hmm. more conservation, more um, care for communities, employees, consumers, and all of that, which is also, you know, it's it's also indirect, right? So yeah. it's not as easy to see, but, you know, I believe that it does make a difference. Well, I think that's the other thing, like so much, so much of what we do, we think is direct action, right? Like I, you know, we were talking for the first 15 minutes about our personal transformation, what we do for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think the next question I have for you is like, why or how does the work that you do for yourself matter or affect the work that you do in the world? If I'm able to work on myself and to understand what I'm doing and why I'm doing to have this, um, purpose and greater understanding Mm -hmm. uh, with what's happening and why things happen the way they are or being able to accept, right? A lot of, I think the work that we do is sort of accepting we can't change others. You know, we can only work on ourselves. Come on, man. (laughs) But if I come into it, into my interactions and into my connections with you as a more 
um, whole, compassionate, connected human being, then there's this ripple effect, you know, and, and either directly or indirectly, you, you know, are able to then help someone else maybe look at things differently and then they behave differently mm-hmm. and then they, you know, it's, it's, it's worth it. It's worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's easier. It'd be easier for me to just go into the woods with my books on Buddhism and just never come back. Right? <laughs> Would it? Cause then you'd have to like hunt and forage for food and oh, that's like a whole different yeah. <laughs> bag, bag of challenges. <laughs> Oh, but in some ways it would be great, right? And you know, but then I lose what's sort of the best in life, which is is other people and love and joy. And you know, there's only so much of that I can have just by myself, right? So you got to come back into the world and with real people and continue the work. I I agree. Um, One of my like long term soapbox positions has Mm -hmm. always, and I'm just curious what you think about this, has always been that quarterly profits are a terrible policy. What we we should do as a society is start having companies focus on yearly profits. And yeah, they can do quarterly reports, but to have the fiduciary... So if anybody out there that's listening to this is not a lawyer or an investment nerd... (laughs) Just a little bit of like, let me lay some planks. Companies have a legal responsibility. Public public companies that have shares on the stock market have a legal responsibility to make a profit quarterly. It's called a fiduciary duty. It is to their shareholders. Shareholders, like me and you, can sue the companies for not making a profit after a certain amount of time. Because they're not performing well enough. And so my position, my Erin Conlon sitting in her living room watching the recession happen in 2008, I was like, this is stupid. Why are we caring what a company does every three months? Because all it does is create a reactionary position where a company has to cut jobs, cut the fat every three months, and they don't get a lot of opportunity to pause and reinvest or reconfigure. So my policy position has been to shift the fiduciary duty to one year. What do you think about that, Sylvia? Oh, I'd like. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I'm running for office. I don't know what office it is an office. I would like an office with a better chair, please. <laughs> oh no, no. I mean that was that was fantastic. And it sort of it definitely hits the nail on the head. Um the thing is is that we have this multi-trillion dollar economy that was built off of this framework. And yeah. it's hard to undo that. Um are you familiar with benefit corporations, B Corps? Yeah. Well so, tell other people what they are. Yeah, I was I was just about to. Um uh it's uh started uh 15 years ago or so um, by some people who uh, wanted to sort of avoid this problem, right. Of, you know, especially I think classic in business studies, a classic example is what happened with Ben and Jerry's, 
you know, when they were doing so well and people were really driven by their mission of like organic dairy farms and fair trade chocolate and the ice cream and volunteering and giving back, um, donating, you know, large amounts uh, to charities and they went public. And then there was a whole bunch of those like very traditional corporate investors who were like, you are, you know, not completing your fiduciary duty. And they took it over and they forced it to sell um, to, oh God, I don't know, maybe Dean Foods or some other company at the time. Because uh, uh, they could, because mm. they were, you know, they had, by going public, diluted their ownership. And, you know, they were now beholden to the general mainstream yeah. um, shareholders. So uh, to avoid that kind of thing of happening again, they built in um, into a benefit corporation. It's kind of, you know, the way you have like sole proprietorship, partnership, LLCs. It's a different type of incorporation where you mm-hmm. are allowed to, in your corporate charter, bake in language saying that you also take into consideration an environment and people and the consequences in your decision making on top of profit. So it's meant to sort of, you know, it's not... It's not a guarantee of anything, but it helps sort of avoid, even if you go public, um, uh, which it's still so young and it's still so new that for a company to become large enough, that's a benefit corporation to, to get on the publicly traded market. I think you have to have like at least $300 million in revenue before you can even consider filing. Um, it's, Do you know what the largest B Corp is off the top of your head? No, there's also a difference between when you're actually a benefit corporation and if you're just certified, because there's companies where, you know, if you're already in existence, by the time you learn of like what benefit corporations are for you to unwind your business and to reincorporate under the benefit corporation charter, like you risk losing trademarks. It's super expensive, lots of lawyers, you know, and all of that. And so the solution was then you can just get a certification. So you have to fill out information like every two years, lengthy mm-hmm. thing, documentation, they evaluate it and they certify you that you're a B Corp. And so National Investments, we were one of um, the founding um, B Corp members uh, to go through the certification process with these guys uh, um, at B Lab um, to be sort of their guinea pigs for what happens with this sector, right? Because as a financial services firm, we're very different from a, 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 a chocolate you know, making company or an apparel company or energy yeah. company. So um, that's been great. And we've been doing that ever since. Um, it's it's some ways that people are trying to fight this, this classic corporate capitalistic cannibalistic way of doing business. Well, the language of it is interesting, right? Like for you, it's a fight. For me, I see it as a choice to live into integrity. Mm-hmm. I don't really see it as a fight. I see it. And this is just me like reframing because that's how I am. Just being <laughs> me. Just being me over here. But like you know, we all have we all have opportunities to make choices and the system or the world is structured in a certain way and we can you know be at the effect of our of the world or we can make choices that are aligned with what we what matters to us. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those choices aren't really easy. Oh, no, they're not. Not at all. Not at all. Um, so it becomes just levels of levels of, um, I don't know how to describe it, work or integrity. I mean, you just, you do the best that you can yeah. with what you're given. 
And then you take it in small chunks and then you build off of that. And then you try to do a little bit better and nobody is perfect. We don't expect anybody to be perfect, but you know, what I do expect to see is progress. So how do you give yourself that same advice? How do I give them? I, I, uh, typically typically it's by like starting off my morning, listening to podcasts like yours and being reminded. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's how I, uh, start my day is while I'm, you know, making my breakfast or, um, you know, what have you, um, getting my stuff together to head to the office or, uh, you know, I listen to that in the background and it usually just kind of starts my day and with people who remind me, right. You need reminders because it's easy to fall back into the old habits or it's easy to then instead look at the news headlines for that morning and be like, he said, what? (laughs) (laughs) He did what? (laughs) And just... And just want to explode, right? Like the news, it's terrible. And, you know, I understand, you know, why the media needs to sensationalize things and, or, you know, why there's a lot of stuff happening. But yeah, I, I try to start off with something good for my morning to remind me of like, okay, I understand why there's still bad in the world. I understand why there's still people who, you know, just haven't been exposed to more compassionate types of ways of doing things, you know, they're still immersed in families and friends and, and work structures that are, are do it now, do it this way. And, and, you know, not, not allowing them to fully express themselves. Yeah. I mean, I give my clients a practice of do it now a lot, but the point of do it now for me and my clients is not like, that aggressive, like, it's mostly so that people get out of their own way and they have the things that they want. And I think that that's kind of the point, right? There's usually a wisdom in something. Mm -hmm. And it's what's, what's the extreme that we're living into or that's hurting us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That and also um, with doing it and being active, uh, you know, I've noticed, I didn't realize, you know, like reading a lot of books or articles or what have you, or, or listening to podcasts, um, you know, there's something very passive about it. And, you know, I think this is what people struggle with when, when they're doing like, I don't know, um, they have some sort of goal, like maybe like, like weight loss or healthier living or, you know, running a marathon is, is you can read about it. So the end of the day, but it's not until you actually start doing it that <laughs> you have to like having the knowledge is one thing, but experiencing the knowledge is what actually changes you. Yeah. Is there something that you can think of as an example in your life that like you're willing to talk about with that kind of experience? With that, uh You know, whether it was with when I did the landmark program or coaching with you, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, I found like therapy was helpful to kind of like talk things out, but therapists don't tend to give you assignments to do work. Yeah. So that's their traditional framework. And so I eventually stopped finding that as useful. And I found, wow, I made more progress in my relationships with my family and in the way that I interacted with my colleagues at work. 
when I actually was given a task to address the issue and have a conversation with them. That's, you know, not threatening, but just sort of, you know, if I was frustrated or if I saw they were frustrated by whatever thing was happening, the doing part is what actually, as opposed to having these conversations in my head over and over again, and just thinking I needed to just, you know, keep it all inside and, and everything. Well, if I just figure out how to have this conversation in my head with this person perfectly, then when I go to have this conversation in my head with this person per- perfectly, they will do exactly what I think that they'll do. Except <laughs> they never do. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, so it's just you have to... You have to do it. And once you do it a few times, it becomes much easier. And your life, it just I becomes know, right? so much easier to have these conversations where before, you know, it just would have would have gotten anxious or nervous or just avoided it. And now, you know, I have much more just sort of inherent knowing it's not going to be that bad. You know, maybe they'll get upset with me, but hey, maybe not. And or maybe they just need to ruminate on it a little bit and they'll come back later and it'll be even better than I expected. You know, maybe there needs to be that struggle and that blow up. (laughs) Or maybe it doesn't need to be a blow up. Maybe it just needs Mm -hmm. like everyone has their own process too. And like, I think part of what we can learn as human beings is, you know, your experience is internal. And so that means somebody else is having an internal experience too. Mm -hmm. I always forget that. Mm-hmm. Especially with like people in positions of power or perceived power. Mm-hmm. Like Oprah has an internal life. That's, a, that's wild to me. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's so in the public lie and so open about herself. Yeah. Like I, I wonder what Oprah thinks about sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I mean, Super Soul Sunday is one of the podcasts that I listen to. You know, I alternate between like, you know, and definitely I almost feel like everybody knows her. Yeah. (laughs) But also everyone, like I bet you people think that they know Oprah and they do not know Oprah at all, but they know Mm -hmm. the gist of who she is. Mm -hmm. But like, do they? (laughs) Very weird tangent. Yeah. That's a whole different (laughs) conversation about celebrity and, you know. (laughs) Um. Celia, like, what would you say in your experience have been some of your biggest stumbling blocks? Like, what do you notice comes up over and over again? Oh, yeah. So with my family, not, not being the bully, Mm -hmm. not being the bully who is, you know, um, uh, I feel like a lot of my, most of my family members, I have a large family here, you know, like cousins and aunts and uncles and all of that. Um, you know, I have five brothers and <laughs> big family, uh, but all of them are still very, you know, come from this conservative Catholic background and have stuck with it. So as social issues come up um, that we talk about or just things, um, I have so many instances where I want to be like, but why? Why do you view it that way? Why are you so mean to others who are not us? Othering, a lot of othering. Um, and 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 I would try to like change them. And, you know, and they would do the same to me. They would do the same to me. <laughs> to pull you and into the right do. side. <laughs> yeah, and I've just recently realized I really need to just sort of accept that that's where they are and stop trying to change them. And it's going to be more by example, you know, as opposed to me talking at them, 
Mm-hmm. I just need to do and be more compassionate. And if they are not being a compassionate human being with themselves or with others, um, then, you know, just that's okay. You know, it's their path and just I'll be as supportive as I can be. Do you relate to yourself as a bully? I did. I did back um, when uh, when I was younger and there was just uh, struggling with um, my mother passed away when I was 13 and then I was in charge of taking care of my younger brothers. And so sorry. Yeah. And my father, single parent and working long hours and mostly away at the home. And at that time, I just did not know how to deal with things. And so it was just a lot of anger and expectation and, and, you know, why am I the only person taking care of things around the house? You need to also, and, you know, I didn't know any better. And so there was a lot of that. And just also my own grief, you know, my own grief and then being a teenager and and we had moved just, you know, as my mother passed away, we moved to a different town. So it's just all of a sudden, you know, my whole life was upended and just trying to struggle with that, you know, it's just really, um, you know, not having a mentor or a guide, really, you know, a person in my adult life, because my father was dealing with his own grief and struggles and to really then um, help guide me. So it's a lot at that time. Yes. At that time. Yes. I realized it and I would do and I'd say things and I'd be mean and have these expectations. And then, you know, there's this voice in the back of my head of like, why are you being this way? Why are you like this? You know, and uh, I've had to rework you know, and there's obviously still some work to do. It's it's a never ending process. I'm also realizing that is, you know, I'm going to be, you know, I'm like 40 right now and I'm going to be 50 and I'm going to be looking back at like, you know, this podcast in like my social media stream or something and be like, ah, oh, listen to this, listen to my voice and listen to our conversation and be like, oh, Sylvia, you know, ah, you're so much better now. <laughs> but that, isn't that the beauty of like getting old is that you look back at who you were 10 years ago or five years ago and you're like, Oh man, I'm getting better with age. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. every single a time. Whole new like, appreciation for that now. Mm-hmm. I really, I like, like myself more and more every year. I'm just. Person. <laughs> it is great. I have all these people who are like, Oh God, I'm getting old. And I'm like, Oh God, I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> There's a total different context behind it, right? <laughs> totally. Well, and the experience of it, you know, when you come at yourself from compassion and not judgment, that tone makes a huge difference. Like mm-hmm. you get to experience the tone of cheer rather than the tone than the tone of dread. Yeah. 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 I am I am the happiest now than I've ever been. And it is so weird to say that. And I like the idea that, you know, as I continue to work on myself and connecting with others and being compassionate, that I'm going to be even happier in the future. Oh, my God. Okay. What? (laughs) I I have a question. What does that look like in the future? Do you know when you're happier? Hmm. No. And I realized that as I said it, as those words left my mouth, there's also some hubris in there, you know, because there no are way, like, man. it's going to happen. Yeah. There's going to be things that happen, you know, who knows what it is, you know, you know, hopefully it's not like a 
major car accident or something like that, you know, but you know, I'll have struggles, but, uh, happiness, I think will be for me, it's always been a garden. I know you like to garden. So I really relate to that. And having been a city girl or a suburban girl, like, you know, mostly, you know, I'm getting this newfound appreciation for nature and for gardening and, and realizing how important it is that mm-hmm. we stay connected, um, just for our overall, like emotional, spiritual well-being. Yeah. Um, it always involves a garden. Oh, I love that. No, who knows? Who knows what I'll be in like five to 10 years, but I'll be happy and there'll be a garden involved. Okay. I can't wait to come visit. <laughs> um, all right. What's some terrible advice that you've gotten that like seems to work for other people, but just does not apply for you? Wow. Terrible advice. I don't know if I've gotten terrible advice. Have you asked this question of other guests? Mm-hmm. What have been their some of their answers? Um, I you know sometimes it's like something as simple as like I, you know I can't remember. <laughs> I ask this question a lot. Some some terrible advice is you know the the traditional self-help advice, like get up early. Like if you're not a morning person, getting up early is terrible advice. Um, I feel like I've had terrible expectations. And what does that mean? This is from my traditional family of like, you know, um, not being married with children at this point or, you know, um, uh, not having a huge house in the suburbs you know, and like, it's hard for me to explain to them. I don't want that. <laughs> I yeah. love the suburbs. I, you know, wealthy white suburb. I, and it was just very isolating and alienating in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so I actively choose not to do that. Um, and uh, so it's just those sort of expectations that I feel like I didn't realize how I was never really following them. And then I was getting upset because I didn't understand, you know, I was like, I'm not doing with these things that we're conditioned to subconsciously expect. Mm -hmm. Um, And now I'm realizing, Hey, that's actually, you know, I was probably following my inner voice, you know, and I think a lot of that had to do with the independence that I had to get from such a young age. Yeah. I I see how that, like, it's not really advice so much as it's the roadmap Mm -hmm. that other people, or you think that other people expect of you and maybe they do, or maybe they don't, but like, it's this self-imposed life plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, so that was terrible sort of advice or expectation um, that now I'm realizing, you know, I can write my own rules and just what makes me happy, you know, and listen to that on the inside and then, and then continue cultivating that and working on it. Yeah. How can people support you? How can people support me? Uh, I think <laughs> uh, pushing companies and people to do better. <laughs> no, um, there is some, you know, I, I feel very supported already. Not acceptable. Yeah. What? <laughs> Everyone I- deserves as much support as possible. So like, are you accepting new clients? Do you want to hear from people about the like opportunities, what would actually be supportive for you in your life 
Do you want to hear about good campgrounds campgrounds to go to? Like anything. Uh, <laughs> All of it. I I just, you know, I think you and I had talked about it when I was uh, going through coaching is that I'm still looking for um, sort of a tribe here in Chicago. And so mm-hmm. I get, you know, I have, but I'm also still with my family. And so I have to like, sometimes I feel like I have to live both worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as I moved back, uh, there's still, there's still um, this, I'm so busy with life. Mm-hmm. that, you know, and just enjoying my job and being with my family that like, there's also this sort of like community that I haven't tapped into yet. So, so if you want to be friends with Sylvia, you got to make it happen is what she's saying. <laughs> she likes farmers markets, fire dancing on the beach and camping. Yeah. <laughs> it, Sylvia, it's cool. Yeah. Um, so this is my favorite question. The last question that I ask everybody, mm-hmm. how, what does success mean to you? Success means to me that if I wake up in the morning and I'm looking forward to my day, I am living a successful life. I love that. I know that you listen to the podcast. So you've probably had a lot of time to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> But like, how did you come up with that as your answer? Because for me, it's more success, I think, needs to be a a state of being, like a mentality, Mm -hmm. as opposed to this sort of like quantitative or like tangible result. You know, and that's, you know, my question five years ago probably would have been more like, oh, I, you know, like I said earlier, being happy in a garden and, Mm -hmm. you know, dogs or great business or what have you, or married with kids. But, you know, now that I've been doing this work and seeing things, it's really about like, whatever you have in your life at that time, it's just, you need to, if I can wake up in the morning and look forward to my day, that I'm doing it right. Oh, that's so good. (laughs) Oh, could you imagine what the world would be like if you could wake up in the morning and look forward to your day and everyone had that same gift? Yeah. Yeah. That's, oh. I think that's utopia. And I wonder if anybody listening to this right now in their head, they're like, that's so unrealistic. I'm sure that I'm sure that somebody is like, that, well, that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this. I don't know about you, but more often than not, I do look forward to at least two things in my day. Zelda not eating your earpods? I do not look forward to my puppy being an asshole. <laughs> I'm so mad at her. <laughs> I, my, so Zelda ate my AirPods, my AirPods Pro that I got for, and the case that my sister got me for Christmas. And thank goodness for my sister Molly and her Capricorn nature because she also got me Apple Care Plus. And Apple Care Plus will replace the AirPods for a nominal fee of $30, which is way cheaper than the 300 that it would cost to replace them. So I'm like, yes. but I'm also like, can I return my puppy? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sylvia, I am so glad that we got to hang out on this well, podcast. Well, you didn't finish. I interrupted you. What are the things... 
Oh, uh, I, there's just two things. Like, I, it's not anything in particular. There's usually mm-hmm. at least two things on my day, even if I'm having like a. I you know, sometimes I get into funks where I'm like, Argh. even when I'm in funks, there's usually at least two things that I like about my day. Yeah, most of the time it's like going to the dog park and usually a client. Yeah. I love that. That's great. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much. Thank you for being on my podcast. Oh my it's such a thank pleasure to have you. You, this is so fun. I don't get to do this kind of thing every day like you do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't record every day, but. <laughs> oh my goodness. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Aaron. Everyone support Sylvia. And if you really want to start learning how to invest in alignment with your values, um, reach out to her. Yep. I love talking about it. And also, you know how to do it. (laughs) We do not. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. This is Not Advice is brought to you by me, Erin Conlin. If you are interested in learning more about my coaching practice or how we might be able to work together, please visit erinconlin.com. This podcast would not have happened without production support from Cedar Cathedral Narrative Studio.